Hi, welcome to Find My Next Office podcast. My name is Karina Irvin, and I'm the founder of Peninsula Commercial Real Estate Group. Each episode, I'm going to sit down with clients of mine to talk about their experience as an entrepreneur and also learn about their journey in finding their next office. Please enjoy this next episode, and thanks so much for listening. At the beginning of each episode, we talk about frequently asked questions in commercial real estate. Today, I will talk about security deposit. What is a security deposit, you might ask? Well, a security deposit is basically a payment that a tenant makes to the landlord before the lease actually begins. When you sign the lease, you usually are required to pay the landlord a security deposit and first month's rent. So the payment for the security deposit does not go towards rent. Instead, it's being held by the landlord as securitization for the lease or against future unknowns that may occur during the lease term. So most often, the deposit is used after you move out, right? If the, if the space needs repair, you damaged it outside of normal wear and tear, um, the landlord uses it to repair the space before a new tenant moves in. Uh, security deposit is also a way for the landlord to hedge the risk of a tenant not paying rent, or if a tenant is a startup or has less favorable credit, they use the security deposit to hedge against that risk. Um, In California and probably most other markets, I would say that there's no restriction on the amount of commercial real estate a security deposit may be. You know, in residential, I know the laws govern the max amount of security deposit that you have that, that landlords can charge in commercial real estate. It's basically what the market will bear and what the landlord needs to feel comfortable with securing that lease. Ultimately, the security deposit is refundable. So if there's no major damage, you've kept your word, you've kept everything on the lease, um, the landlord will rebate and refund you that deposit within 30 days. So now let's talk about the amount of the security deposit. That's one of the most frequently asked questions I get is, is this security deposit amount fair? And so I would say it varies on a case-by-case basis, and it's really based on factors, again, that the landlord needs to feel comfortable. Um, Is the tenant's credit, you know, how is it? Uh, Is there out-of-pocket costs that the landlord has to incur, like a tenant improvement build-out or other out-of-pocket costs that they need that they want to securitize? Uh, And again, what the market will bear. So I would say it's really dependent on those factors. And I've honestly seen security deposits go as high as nine months plus. And then in those cases, when it's such a large amount, what we as brokers do is negotiate a way to make it a little bit more palpable, right? So a burn down is probably the most often used negotiation for that, where the tenant has to put up a lot of money up front, and then we would negotiate for portions of, of that security deposit to be returned throughout the lease, tenant establishes a good relationship with the landlord. So a security deposit is usually given in a couple of forms. Most often it's either in a cash form or a letter of credit from the bank. There is another form that is being discussed now, which I think I'll have an episode about this, which is an insurance bond in lieu of cash or of letter of credit. You know, this matters if you're trying to keep your money and growing your business or it's a larger deposit than normal. So anyway, hopefully that's helpful. That's security deposit. Today, we have an exciting guest. We have my friend and my client, Kaveh Namadi. Kaveh is the head of finance 
and he is one of the partners at a rapidly growing company called Locale. A lot of you will be using Locale very soon, but to those who haven't heard about it yet, Locale is a marketplace that basically connects consumers and local businesses to get products delivered together all in one box. So if you want your favorite sandwich from your local deli or a pastry from a popular dessert place, for example, you don't have to wait in that line. Locale will deliver it to you all in one box. I'll have Kave explain more about the company himself and how it got started because it's a very interesting story. Kave, take it away. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I grew up in the Bay Area in California in a small town called Cupertino that's maybe not so small anymore, uh, at least from the outside looking in. Uh, my parents are both engineers and my brother as well, and kind of just grew up with the um, expectation that I would follow down that same road and become an engineer or a programmer, something of that sort. Outside of that, though, you know, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship from a very young age. I can remember back to when I was in middle school and I would have my mom take me to Target where I would buy these little finger skateboards called Tech Decks and I'd get a pack of four for $10 and then I'd take them to school and I'd sell them to other kids for $5 a piece and make a little bit of money and then have my mom take me back to Target to buy more of these so I could sell them to the other kids at school. I know you probably weren't allowed to do this or supposed to do this in middle school, but I've always had the interest in, you know, finding creative ways to make money. And that's kind of, uh, it's kind of just always stuck with me through life. Eventually, you know, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where I switched my major three different times uh, because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do and uh, landed on statistics and data science, which, you know, I, I really enjoyed and I, I'm still passionate about to this day, despite the fact that I don't work in maybe the most relevant field. In that time that I was at Cal Poly, I actually took uh, a little over a year away from school to start another business. We were building drones for agricultural work and testing these out in you know the neighboring wine country out in Paso Robles. And this was I would say my first real experience to entrepreneurship, this is the first time I was able to raise money for a project that I was working on. And really our thinking here was I was living in a very ag-centric community and out on the central coast. And I had a passion for data science and my business partner had a passion for robotics. And we kind of combined the two to come up with drones that could fly over, field the crop, use multispectral imaging to find where you know, crop may not be doing as well, and then ground truth it with the, the driving capability of these drones to, to go and, you know, image from underneath the canopy and really provide actionable, actionable insights uh, to farmers. You know, needless to say, you introduced at the beginning of the show or the podcast that I'm working at Locale now, so this didn't really work out all the way I wanted to, and eventually I did have to go back to school. But it was a great learning experience. You know, I got exposure to talking to venture capitalists, trying to raise money, uh, being out in the field and like, working with, you know, the people who are going to be using my tool and in this case, like customers and, and how to actually communicate with customers and try and refine and develop a product that people actually want. I, so I love that story about starting out your entrepreneurial journey with the tech decks and then obviously the <laughs> drone and now the locale. I definitely want to dig more. Um, on the spirit of that, because it sounds like from your mom and dad and your brother, they went the traditional route of engineering, right? And mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit more about how that conversation played out in the family, because I know in some of our past conversations, one of the things that you and I kind of talked about and 
related to was your mom is in tech, which is a, a you know a male dominated world and it continues to be, right? And so yeah. you're a big supporter of women entrepreneurs, which I appreciate, <laughs> obviously. Um, but tell us a little bit about about that story because I know obviously your family, I think it's immigrants as well, early, you know, first, mm-hmm. second generation. So um, it's always an interesting story with entre- entrepreneurship when it comes to that. So can you delve a little bit deeper uh, into that? It has more to do with where I grow up as well, just on the specific topic of my mom. Yes, my mom is the actually the breadwinner in our family. Um, she makes she makes the most money. She works in tech. And she went to Berkeley and studied electrical engineering and computer science. So, you know, very technical, heavy field. And I would say the first time that I experienced, um, you know, real friction or pushback in kind of the decisions I was making with my life was when I switched my major at school from computer science to, to statistics. It's not something my parents had ever heard about. They were freaking out, asking all their friends at work, what is this? Is this a real field? Um, you know, like, is he going to make any money out of this? You know, typical things that I think immigrant parents tend to care about. Um, when you grow up in uh, Cupertino, um, all of my friends at school and pretty much everyone in the area were everyone's first or second generation immigrant. Everyone comes from all over the place. A lot of people from East Asia, a lot of people from the Middle East, you know, all over the world come in here to work in tech and and make a living in that industry. And you know, because of that, when you grow up, when you when you're uh, you know coming through in high school. All you really hear about is people going to work at Apple, Google, like software engineer here, a doctor here, or maybe a lawyer somewhere else. And I think your your vision on and your outlook on, I guess, what you can do in life is, is pretty narrow, which is something that I kind of learned once I went off to college and, and got exposed to different groups of people. Really, there's a big switch of mindset there when I met people from, you know, other states and uh, interested in other professions. You know, we had a lot of majors at the school that were not anything I ever even considered or knew much about, or even thought my parents would be okay with me studying in, in college, which, you know, to, to the outsider looking in, sounds crazy. You would think, yeah, you can study whatever you want in college. But, um, you know, with with uh, parents putting a little bit of pressure on you and, and, and kind of similarly to all the other kids from from where I come from, you kind of do what your parents want you to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, which brings us to, you were in college, you met some interesting friends, a lot of different backgrounds. There was a need during the pandemic, right? You guys saw a need and you filled, uh, you found a solution to to solve that that issue. And, and that's how Locale was born. So can you talk a little bit about that? Timeline wise, I'm in my fifth year at college. Like I said, I had taken a year away. So I was back for a fifth year to to finish up what I'd missed. In that fifth year, I had a roommate, his name is Chris Clark, and he was constantly asking me questions about what I was doing with the drones and that business. And we kind of went our separate ways, if you will, after college, even though, you know, we live like maybe 10, 15 minutes away from each other, our parents do. And maybe this is May of 2020 and gave me a call saying, hey, me and my friend Jonathan are starting a a business. Um we're basically just delivering like food from downtown Los Gatos and the farmer's market, people's houses right now. We're just delivering to like friends and family and kept asking me for advice on, you know, how to, how to actually scale and carry out deliveries and what's the best place, best way to like position yourself and acquire customers. A lot of this, I honestly did not have great answers to, but that being said, 
he what we were talking on the phone quite frequently about what they were doing and within two weeks he'd asked me if i just wanted to join them all together and just come on and work with them um not not full time at this point because um, we all had other corporate jobs, but come on and work with them in, our, in my spare time. Um, so that was, I mean, that was how I got how I got involved. But really, the thinking there was early in the pandemic. Uh, there weren't many. It, if you remember, like everything, everything seemed like a ghost town, and downtown Los Gatos in particular is usually full of people, uh, particularly on the weekends, Saturday morning. Uh, it's packed with people waiting out outside and, and lines forming for bakeries and all kinds of different restaurants and shops. And if you walk through on a Saturday in uh, May of 2020, it's a ghost town. Like, there's no one there. <laughs> yeah. um, and we thought, you know, it'd be a great way to keep the community connected and help businesses, uh, local businesses in particular, restore that connection that they've lost because at that point, you know, all their options are takeout or delivery services um, or other, sorry, instantaneous delivery services. Um, and that's where we stepped in and thought there's an opportunity here. Uh, we can, you know, we're getting food from all over. We can just go and deliver these people's doors. And for the for the early stage of, of this process, we were pretty much just buying everything at a retail price, um, not really telling anyone, uh, like the vendors, for example, what we're doing. And then selling it to people at the exact same price we bought it for. So really, we weren't making any money. We were using our own time, gas, money, vehicles, and everything to just go do all of this. Um, so we did that for, um, I would say, about three months off of a Google form that we would send out in Facebook groups where people would say, click a box saying, oh, I want uh, strawberries, I want a croissant, I want you know, blueberries, whatever it might be. We didn't have many products. And then it got to the point where we were doing about $10,000 every week in revenue. Um, and we were all still working our other jobs. So this is, you know, it was catching up to us. And we decided, okay, maybe let's get a little bit more serious about this. Let's build a real website. And so we brought someone else in um, to do that. And we eventually built a real website to take orders correctly, attach payment processors, um, and then kept growing the business from there. You know, we started to get more legitimate businesses on board as in more favorites in the bay area um, we started to get even inbound requests to be on our platform and it got to the point where we basically decided okay we're going to raise some money and quit our jobs because this is way more fun than the corporate jobs that we're working now uh and i, I won't go i won't go further than that unless you'd like me to <laughs> no it's great and i think it worked out because you started up bootstrapping your own time your own money and I think the core and the heart of your company, which is to kind of help the community during a time of need, it's beautiful because it, it now from that kind of very pure helping your own time, your own money position to now a thriving business that's growing is a great story, which obviously now we're in kind of this the stage where you guys had your first warehouse, you know, your first small office. Um, you know, obviously the name of our podcast is Find My Next Office. So let's talk about the real estate footprint of how this started, right? So you guys were out of your dorm rooms. Yeah, actually, so this is this is really interesting. So the first, so when we're actually delivering this food, we have to bring it to a central location to package it with the food from other vendors. So we needed a place to do that. And in the early days, we were literally doing that out of Chris's kitchen, who I mentioned earlier. So this is at his parents' house in Los Gatos, in their kitchen. 
we're fumbling blueberries all over the floor. There's there's uh, juice everywhere. Everything's stained. Um, I'm sure his parents love that. <laughs> yeah, they were big fans. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, once his parents kind of got fed up with that, we had to look for other solutions. Our quickest solution was another friend's house who would let us do it at their house. And then from there, we got um, we got an opportunity to work out of uh, a church in Los Gatos. They had a really nice space. We were in there for a couple weeks before I think the pastor um, got upset at us over something and, and we got kicked out. And then we were scrambling. We went back to out of someone's yard, even though we were you know, a little too big to be working out of someone's backyard and basically just kept scrambling for a place to work where eventually uh, one of our vendors made an offer to us that was very interesting. Um, so this, was, this was the uh, general manager of Oren's Hummus. It's uh, kind of like a Middle Eastern chain here in, uh, here in the Bay Area. He offered us to work out of their commissary kitchen in San Jose. And in return, we would pay him rent as a percentage of our revenue capped at you know a certain amount. I think it was about $3,000 a month. Uh, which was a great deal for us. We snapped that right away and we worked out of that space for quite some time until we outgrew it. And we were honestly getting in the way of what Orange Hummus was trying to do in there too. We were taking up their space and it, it got to, it got to a boiling point where they just couldn't have us there anymore. At this point, we had begun to raise a little bit of money and we were ready to actually lease a real place and become more, you know, official and legit and not just working out of people's yards and just taking favors. So we reached out through a few real estate agents and eventually found a spot also in San Jose. It actually turned out to be a minute down the road from the uh, commissary kitchen that we were working out of. It's a, It was a small, I think, 4,500 square foot spot that we worked out of until February, actually, of this year. So that's just the Bay Area, right? And then we you know, simultaneously wanted to launch LA. So we started that in November this year. Initially, we're working out of my apartment. And then we found a commissary kitchen, which we have outgrown incredibly quickly. And that's about the point where I reached out to you. Basically, you know, we realized that we wanted to plan ahead and be a little bit smarter about our needs. And this is something you were extremely helpful, helpful with, which is finding a space that's bigger than what we need now. And it's going to give us an option to grow and also be centrally located to where all of our customers are, which is, you know, not an easy thing to do. We tried looking before we even met you. Uh, we spoke to other, uh, we spoke to real estate agents. We spoke to friends in, in similar businesses and, and even did our own research online and um, couldn't find a single thing. And somehow you came up with multiple good options and we ended up taking the best one, I think. Yeah, which is great because I think uh, the benefit to this podcast is a lot of people in the same boat as you, you know, startups, mid-sized companies, growing companies can learn from the journey and the lessons that you've learned. And I remember when you and I first met, um, you know, the conversation was, let's do a one-year term because we want to, you know, we're going to outgrow this space. And I think the important part that we learned through this process is that, you know, we can find the right project where you can negotiate those flexibilities. Like a right of first offer is what we did for your space now so that you don't have to pay for it right away because you want to keep your money in the business because you're growing, but have that option to expand. I think I learned a lot about this whole 
uh, this whole process and this whole game from from working with you, I, a lot of things I didn't know before. Like I, I didn't even know that you could have a right of first offer in place. I was unaware that it was, uh, I guess, like what state the market was in and that it wouldn't be too difficult to, you know, find a sublease or if we ever had to move to an entirely different location and, and that it wouldn't really come at as much of a risk to the company. And that's, you know, that, that was my main concern, right? It's how can I de-risk this for the company and also um, get a space that's going to allow us to operate um, as functionally as possible. And I think, I think through, you know, the things you taught me and explained to me and, and uh, just the work of digging through all these different spaces, going to visit them, learning about terms, we've ended up with uh, honestly the best outcome for, for us and, and hopefully for, for everyone else involved so happy about it i think also uh another win in this in this instance is finding the right landlord who also believes in you and right you guys are a startup and how do you present that to a landlord that wants to invest money in building out this beautiful space and you know so that was also interesting in finding the right you know partners well-capitalized landlord on the other side definitely definitely i'm a little sad i haven't gotten to meet him but (laughs) i'm glad he I'm glad he had a ton of interest in us and, and was particularly interested in supporting a young, growing company. Um, but from what I understand, he he came from one himself. Exactly, exactly. So let's move on to our rapid advice section of our podcast. Again, part of this is uh, helping other entrepreneurs in their you know space journey and finding office, industrial, retail. So give us one piece of advice from your commercial real estate space search that can help someone else as they go through this process. Yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice would be start looking before you think you need it. Uh, I think you need to understand what's out there and what's available pretty early on, because um, especially in a business like ours, you know, timetables can change um, overnight, as in you might need to think you need something in four months and it turns out you actually need it next month. Um, so I think starting as early as you possibly can on a search is probably the best advice I could give. That's great advice. Absolutely great advice. Uh, next question. What is your favorite entrepreneurial book uh, that, that you've read or plan to read? Um, there's this book uh, called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, the founder of uh, Zappos. And I haven't finished the book, but I really enjoy it. And something I think I really like or I connected well with, uh, with him about was uh, kind of his anecdotes and stories about how he made money as a as a kid doing random starting random businesses. I think one of them was making pins or stamps or something of that sort. I don't remember exactly um, when he was like in elementary school. Um, and I think it's a great, I think it's a great, you know, story and great indicator that um, entrepreneurship can start at a very young age and the interest in it, you know, starts at a really young age. It's not something that. Uh, you need to go to school to learn. It's it's something you need to have curiosity and interest about. And that's I think that's what makes the most successful entrepreneurs. I love that. I'm adding that to my book list for sure. And I think you're right. There is a common thread with a lot of entrepreneurs. And so uh, it, it's fun to read that. So adding that to my book list. Uh, last question. You know, entrepreneur, uh, entre- being an entrepreneur is hard. It's ups and downs. It's not always rainbows and unicorns. So um, mm-hmm. what is your favorite piece of inspirational quote or a motivational quote that you kind of a mantra something that you tell yourself when things aren't as easy as as you'd like yeah so sometimes i get hung up um 
you know, going into a project or, or starting some work when I think, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I'm way in over my head. And I think this is pretty common amongst people who are uh, doing, trying to do what I'm doing. And early on, you know, this really scared me and, and, and took a lot out of me. I, I think something I've learned, and this isn't really a quote, but just more of a piece of advice is really just don't be afraid to not know things. I think I think admitting you don't know things is the best way to know them and the best way to learn. Um, so there's no shame in lack of knowledge. Um, it's, it's better than thinking you have all the knowledge. That's great advice. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much, Kaveh. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm, I'm sure our guests and our listeners will too. And I appreciate you being our guest here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been great. It's been great working with you. And I'm, I'm also really glad we were able to do this. 